0: Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hello, Willingdon Church and all of our guests tuning in online. This week, we are continuing on our series in the Gospel of Matthew called The Beautiful Way, looking at the launch and initial teachings of Jesus' ministry. Starting in chapter 3, book of Matthew, We're continuing on today in chapter five, and we've been sharing about what the beautiful way of life is that Jesus calls us to, and how he lived it out himself. If you haven't listened to the rest of the messages in this series, I would encourage you to do so. Well, my name is Jordan, and I serve as one of the pastors on staff here. And today, I will be speaking on Matthew chapter five, verses seven to 12. So if you wanna get your Bible out and journal for taking notes, that would be awesome. I wanna begin today by asking you, Have you ever met or known of someone whose way of life was captivating to you? As you saw the way they lived, how they interacted with others, and how they spent their time, you know, maybe their dreams and aspirations, and all of it was just so inspiring to you that you wish you could be just like them? Well, for me, it was my Uncle Barry. For most of my life, I've not been a Christian, and my Uncle Barry is a pastor. During my adolescent years, I was not interested in religion at all or becoming spiritual, but I had a deep respect for how my uncle led his life as a Christian. I observed his interactions with people when we were together. He was full of love, grace, and exercised wisdom in navigating tense situations. He was also very adventurous, traveling to foreign countries to enjoy the beauty that they offered but more importantly, to share love and essential resources with people who were impoverished and lacking hope. My uncle is also very much into the outdoors, pushing his limits and exploring the wilderness, and he always knew how to have a good time. Even when I didn't believe in Jesus, I saw the way that my uncle lived, and I thought, I wanna be more like that when I'm older. Now that I too am a follower of Jesus, My respect for him has only grown deeper. So who is the person that you've dreamed about becoming like? It could be a family member or a friend or maybe a celebrity or or a public figure, someone you follow on Instagram. We all have people whose ways of life captivate us and inspire us to live better lives ourselves. It's a beautiful and honoring thing to learn from others and allow their way of life to positively impact and shape our own. That being said, there's one man who has lived and shown us the most beautiful way. He is the one who teaches us what the best way to live is, and that person is Jesus. Today, we will be looking at four key statements that Jesus made on how to live the most beautiful way of life. They're called the Beatitudes, and we'll be unpacking their significance for our lives today. So the first one we're gonna go through is, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Do you enjoy showing mercy? It would appear that people are split about whether mercy is actually a virtue. Some say it is a good thing to be merciful to people because it shows a strength of character, you know, an internal stability when people don't require others to be punished as they might deserve. But others would say it is an unwise weakness of character that shows people are afraid of holding others accountable for their actions. We applaud movies that demonstrate benevolent protagonists taking the high road such as Russell Crowe in Gladiator when he refused to kill one of his opponents despite the Emperor's strict command to do so. He showed this other man mercy even though this man would have killed him himself if the battle went the other way. At the same time, we also cheer on as vengeance driven protagonists such as Liam Neeson in the movies Taken shows no mercy as he goes out to kill every man that kidnapped his daughter and all of the ones working in the prostitution ring that she was abducted into. We can't help but feel a bit of righteous vindication as those evil men were killed as a punishment for their actions. Part of the human struggle is that we don't always want to give mercy, yet we always want to receive it. If someone stole your money and couldn't pay you back, and the police gave you the option of either pressing charges and sending them to prison, or showing them mercy and letting them go, what choice would you make? The challenge with showing mercy is that it always costs us something. It's up to us to evaluate whether the price of showing mercy is greater or lesser than the price someone has to pay to be punished. For example, if someone stole $10 from you and was being sentenced to a year in prison, it might be easy for you to show mercy and forgive them that debt. But if that same person stole $10,000 from you, it becomes a different story. And a year in prison doesn't seem so harsh after all. So do we still show mercy? How do we decide that? We have to look to Jesus to teach us the best way of dealing with situations like this. Jesus says, you will be happy or blessed when you show people mercy because you yourself will receive mercy. Now, that doesn't guarantee that if you always show people mercy, that people will always show you mercy in return, like a version of Christian karma or something like that. It may increase the likelihood of you receiving mercy because people will value your character and reputation, but ultimately, our greatest need for mercy isn't from other people, it's from God himself. God calls us to be merciful, to forgive instead of holding things against people because that is exactly how he has acted towards us. In the very next chapter of Matthew, verse 15, Jesus says that if we don't forgive other people, If we don't show people mercy, then God will not forgive us either. God has graciously given us forgiveness and mercy that we never deserved. One of the clearest signs that we have received God's mercy is our ability to show mercy to others. I'm going to say that one more time. One of the clearest signs that we have received God's mercy is our ability to show mercy to others. So am I saying that we can never hold people accountable for their actions? That if someone steals ten thousand dollars we should just let them go free? It depends. Our goal isn't making black and white legalistic rules around this. No, it's to get ourselves more involved in these situations and seek God for how we can show mercy. There are many factors that could have led to your money being stolen that need to be considered and ultimately our goal is to look for ways that we can redemptively show mercy to those who wrong us. We can get very creative in the process of doing this. If we care about the people who wrong us and want to try to show them mercy, it just takes time and love. As we consider the beautiful way of Jesus, we see that the kingdom he invites us into is one that is filled with mercy. The second statement Jesus makes in this passage is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Before I get into this one, it's important that I quickly address two verses from the Bible that would seem to contradict this claim. The first one is John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The second one is Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. God says, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So if we know that no one has seen God because no one can look at his face and live, then what does this passage mean by saying that the pure in heart will see God? Well, instead of contradicting what Jesus said, these two verses actually help shed light onto what Jesus was actually getting at. This passage is not necessarily referring to seeing God in the same way that you and I could look at each other right now. No, what it's referring to is seeing God at work in the world all around you, seeing God's fingerprint and activity throughout our lives. When our hearts are impure, filled with selfish or destructive thoughts and desires, then we will be looking at the world and people around us in a very self-centered, unhealthy way but when our hearts are pure, when we desire things and align ourselves to see things the way God does, then we will have our eyes opened to what God is doing and how he reveals himself all around us. So here are two examples of how this could play out. When our hearts are filled with greed, which is an impure way of viewing resources and valuing our needs above the needs of others, Then we will see people as competition or we'll look at different financial opportunities to see how we can exploit or manipulate things in our favor. We will not see what God is doing in his view of others. However, when our hearts are filled with love and generosity instead of greed, we will look at others as potential people to bless, recipients of our love, When our hearts have the purity of not being so focused on our own gain we can see more clearly how God is at work and how he is inviting us to partner with him in blessing others. Another example would be the human struggle with lust. When we objectify other people's bodies, whether through pornography, sexual fantasies, or unhealthy relationships, Our hearts are impure and we can only see people's value to the degree that their appearance arouses us. People become commodities for our own selfish pleasure and we fail to see the beautiful, glorious image of God in every human being. But when our hearts are captivated by the intrinsic beauty that each person possesses, as people who reflect God's likeness, then we begin to see the image and fingerprints of God on every person that we come across. We see God's glory and beauty through people in ways that we would have missed before because we were treating them image bearers as sexual objects. More than that, when our hearts are pure, we can grow in love and desire to see all people come to know Jesus rather than fixating on the superficiality of people's external beauty. I've struggled in both of these areas, being greedy and lustful on far more occasions than I need to share right now. But one clear example I experienced of God purifying my heart was around eight years ago. There was a show on TV called Mori. And if you're older than 20, you will definitely know what I'm talking about. It was a talk show that basically exploited the drama of broken people to make them objects of ridicule for the viewers. As I began to watch this show, there was a woman on it who was charged for murdering a family member. And she just had this really nasty attitude and evil look on her face. As I looked at her, I realized that I saw her with disdain. I considered her to be a moral monster of sorts, and she was far beneath my moral superiority. But in a moment, God reminded me that he loved her. He made her in his image and sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for her. As that truth flooded into my head and my heart, like the sun pouring into a dark room after the curtains are opened, my view of this woman changed in an instant. I immediately saw her as a beautiful, wonderful masterpiece of God. I saw that her life had immense value and God purified my hardened heart so that I may see her as he does and see his image within her." As we purify our hearts and think about things and desire things that are in alignment with God, we begin to see God's image, his character, his work and his presence all around us. The same examples could be applied to our experience with nature, career, education, relationships, and anything else we experience in life. The more pure our hearts become, the more clearly we begin to see God in all of the areas of our lives. God is at work all around us if we care to see, and put in the time and effort to have our hearts purified. And if our hearts are impure, we will miss so many beautiful opportunities to see God. So how do we purify our hearts? We need to meet with Jesus. This can be done through reading the Bible, praying, singing praise songs, and engaging in the great commission that he's called us all to. And those are just some of many other ways of experiencing God's presence and spending time with Him. But as we get to know God better, learning about what He desires for us, what He says is best, what the beautiful truths and virtues are that He's woven into the fabric of creation, when we become aware of areas in our lives that are not aligned with God, once we discover things about our thoughts, desires, and beliefs that are not aligned with Him, we have the chance to change our minds for the better. To ask God in prayer to transform our hearts and to say yes to God's ways instead of our flawed old ways of thinking. As we consider the beautiful way of Jesus, we see that the kingdom he invites us into is one that is pure and God can be seen all around. The third statement Jesus makes in this passage is, Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Have you ever noticed that different families have their own niche or things that they're known for? For example, your family might be known as hardworking or fun-loving, and someone else's family could be seen as tightly knit or as adventurous, you know, having kids living in different countries around the world and the parents who themselves travel regularly. This works itself out both in positive ways and in some negative ways. Some families are known for their generosity, and others for being closed off. Some are known for their love towards each other, and other families for the brokenness that's in their relationships. Whatever values are emphasized or most commonly experienced in a family system, those often become inherited and lived out by the different members of that family. I remember playing basketball in high school against a guy who was a very talented athlete. He actually ended up becoming a professional athlete who played in the MLB. Later on, I heard that his sister was also a top performing athlete, one of the best in the country in the sports she played, and I finally discovered that their dad was also an elite athlete and continued coaching and training after he retired from sports himself. This family clearly valued competition, exercise, self-improvement, among other things. To sport their last name, to be a member of that family, it just meant that you would most likely love sports and be great at them. So what does it mean then for us to be called children of God, members of his family? What values are our spiritual family known for? One thing that we are meant to be known for is peacemaking. Shout out to all the number nine Enneagram friends out there. You are naturally closer to God than the rest of us. In all seriousness though, when people outside the church think about Christians, what should come to their minds? Many things will come to their minds as we are such a large, diverse, beautiful family, all sorts of people part of it. But one of our defining features ought to be that we are peacemakers. We are people who go out of our way to actively make peace in situations that are otherwise chaotic. A peacemaker is not someone who's apathetic or passive, just trying to keep the peace at all cost. No, a peacemaker is someone who sees a troubling situation and does whatever they can to restore peace in the tensions and challenges that may exist. Nelson Mandela was a peacemaker. He worked tirelessly peacefully protesting and non-violently overthrowing a violence-ridden program that oppressed black people in South Africa. Nelson Mandela wasn't simply peaceful, but he was an active peacemaker, even going to jail and having his life threatened repeatedly as he labored to bring peace between black people and white people who lived under the apartheid in South Africa. Now, most of us will likely never be a Nelson Mandela but we will definitely have opportunities to be peacemakers all around us. So instead of us playing into the cancel culture that marks our generation, instead of us cutting people out of our lives at the slightest sign of trouble or disagreement, we need to venture into the chaos around us. We are to actively, even sacrificially, make peace where there is conflict peacemaking ought to define the global church so completely that when people see someone being a peacemaker in their community, their first thought might be, ah, they're probably a Christian, because that is what it means to be a member of God's family. When we think about other narratives that define the church in Canada or even North America, people say things like, Christians are narrow-minded or bigoted or intolerant Why do people say these things? There may be a variety of reasons for why the Christian community has earned these titles. And some of these reasons are well deserved. We've made a lot of mistakes. And others are simply people just hating on the church for no good reason. There's a bunch of reasons out there. However, if we have earned such titles as individual followers of Christ or as church communities, then it's up to us to turn back to God and learn from Him how we may live as peacemakers instead of troublemakers. By God's grace, we need to change the way we live to reflect peacemaking as a defining attribute of what it means to be a Christian and allow our lives to show people that we are not intolerant, bigoted, or any other negative word that's being used against the Christian community. As we consider the beautiful way of Jesus, we see that the kingdom he invites us into is one that is filled with peace and people who actively seek to make peace around them. The last of the four statements that Jesus makes in this passage is, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you Persecute you and say all kinds of false things and evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This passage closes with Jesus announcing perhaps one of the most challenging, yet beautiful promises in this entire list of Beatitudes. Most of us probably don't equate being ridiculed or oppressed for our faith with happiness and blessing. Oftentimes, when we experience any sense of resistance to our belief in Jesus and worldview, we think we're losing and we begin to retreat. Have you ever had someone say something mean to you or give you a weird look because of your faith in Jesus? How did it feel? Take a moment, how did you respond? Well, in the closing section of the Beatitudes, Jesus says that we are to rejoice and be glad when that happens. Wow. I remember when I first became a follower of Jesus, none of my friends shared my beliefs and I couldn't help but tell all of them about what happened to me and that they needed to get to know God too. But in the process of me sharing my newfound faith with my friends, I experienced a lot of resistance and rejection. Most of them were nice about it, but on occasion, I would have people try and make fun of my faith or simply to just shut me out of their life. A common response was, Jordan, you're so smart. Why would you believe something as stupid as that religion? To which I would reply, clearly I'm not that smart. Through all of my experiences and sharing my faith over the years, I can only ever recall rejoicing and being glad when people were open to hearing about Jesus. When they would come and meet my church community, and when it looked like there was a good chance that they would be giving their life to Jesus. When there was no openness to talking about him, or when people rejected me because of my faith, I can't say that I left those moments rejoicing and having this overwhelming sense of gladness. I mean, the damage was twofold. First, they they'd rejected Jesus. And unless their hearts change, they will be forever separated from God, never having the joy of knowing and being known by the Creator and Savior of their life. That thought saddened me deeply as I saw them rejecting the eternal life that we are all meant to live with God. Secondly, I felt personally rejected because I wasn't just experiencing these people saying no to Jesus, but in the process, it put strain on our friendship, especially as I stopped doing many of the things that we once did together as friends. My desire to live physically, emotionally, and spiritually pure naturally led me to stop doing a lot of the things that I once did with them. Yet when we're rejected, Jesus says rejoice. Why is this? Because it's God's job to save people, not ours. As we do our best to share the love and truth of God with others, we trust that God knows their hearts and God will work with them in ways that we cannot even begin to understand. God's ways are so much higher and so much greater than our own. So instead of us focusing on how we can control outcomes and try to force people to think or believe the right thing, all we are responsible for is to faithfully and obediently live the beautiful way that God has called us to, to share it with others and to leave the outcomes to God. When people respond to our love and presentation of the truth in horrible ways like mistreating us or rejecting us or even abusing us, God's encouragement is to take heart. He sees the work you're doing and he does not evaluate you based on the results because the results are up to him. In this passage, Jesus is also promising us that bad things will happen. Suffering will come. Rejection will come. People will dislike us and even hate us for no good reason simply because we follow Jesus and are not afraid to share about it. We don't need to fear people treating us this way though. Instead we can prepare ourselves to expect it. Let's focus on seeking God for the wisdom and strength to respond to people mistreating us in the most gracious, forgiving, and beautiful ways possible. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. So let's be creative and intentional in loving them in the best ways that we know how. As we consider the beautiful way of Jesus, we see that the kingdom he invites us into is one that promotes the best ways of living, one that is filled with gladness and rejoicing. It is the most beautiful kingdom with the most excellent king. The way of Jesus is the most beautiful way. There is no other worldview, no other value system in the world that comes close. And the way of Jesus is not simply a series of self-help or optional teachings that we can kind of pick and choose from. What Jesus presents is the way that all of humanity is meant to live. Within this beautiful way, there is an abundance of room for creativity, individuality, freedom of expression. God does not call us to uniformity, rather he shows us the boundaries by which we can experience the greatest joys and most fulfilling life possible. Within the healthy boundaries God has given us, there's lots of room for all of us to still be our unique selves and enjoy the diversity and variety that this world offers. That being said, there's only one way to God. There's only one way to eternal life and that is by following Jesus. Should you choose to follow this beautiful way, to meet Jesus yourself and receive the amazing gifts and abundant life that he wants to give you, I guarantee that you will never look back. Jesus promises us that we will still experience suffering and that to enter into his beautiful way, we need to acknowledge that we are spiritually bankrupt, weak, and desperately need his help to live rightly. All that Jesus asks is that you give up your flawed ways of thinking, that you acknowledge that not everything you believe is correct, and that all of the mistakes and horrible things that you've done need forgiveness. And that is a forgiveness that only God can give us. If this is you today, if you are tired of trying to make your own way in life, if you are done with living in ways that create pain and relational turmoil with no hope for things improving, then I invite you to choose the way of Jesus today. Now is a great opportunity for you to pray along with me to give your life to Jesus and ask him to lead you on his beautiful way of life. So if that's you, please pray with me now. Lord Jesus, I see that your way is the most beautiful. Lord, I want to give you my life. I want to change my ways. I want to lay down everything so that I may receive your way of life, your eternal life. God, forgive me for the things I've done. Forgive me for the way that I have hurt others, hurt myself, and hurt you. And God, would you bring me into your eternal kingdom? In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, that is amazing. And I am so excited that you've begun this journey of following Jesus. I would encourage you, if you know any Christian friends around you, get in touch with them and let them know the decision that you've made. You can also look at our website online, willingdon.org, and you can check into the ways that you can be connected with our church and begin to learn and grow other aspects of what it means to follow Jesus. Well, with that being said, I'd just love to pray for the rest of our church family, for all of us who call Jesus our Lord and Savior as we go from here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for every brother and sister in Christ who is watching this. God, as we consider the ways that you have shown us, Jesus, how you've taught us to live the best and most beautiful way, I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit that you would empower us, God, with your presence so that we may live differently, so that we may live better, more beautifully with each passing day. So as we go from here, God, as we've been learning about your beatitudes, the ways that you show us are the best, God, would you help us embody that so that the world around us would be a more beautiful place, a more blessed place because of our presence in where you've put us, God. We thank you for being with us, Lord. And we want to give you all the glory with all the great things that you do in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.